Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, this is the 10th sermon in our sermon series on the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. And our text this evening is Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, page 1031 in your Pew Bible. We continue this week in our study of John's second cycle of visions. We've studied the throne of God in chapter 4 and the scroll of God in chapter 5. John the Apostle, our our brother in Christ, has been called up to heaven to see what is about to take place. And we learned that God's hidden plan for history is in this sealed scroll. And we've seen how the Lord Jesus Christ is the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes who alone is able to execute what is written in God's scroll. He alone can break the seals open the scroll, and reveal the plan of God for his redeemed. So we can see that there is now a building sense of anticipation in this first scene of John's vision, as the Lamb takes the scroll from the hand of the one who sits on the throne and begins to break its seals. We search through John's eyes, for the answers to the questions that the church has had since the beginning. They asked it when they saw the grandeur of the temple, asking when, or what, or how long will it be before your coming, before his ascension. Once again, the disciples asked the question, when will these things come to pass? What will it look like? How long will it be? And here again, we gather asking those same questions. But instead of answering our questions, notice we have a prolonged process of opening the scroll and each breaking the seal and opening the page presents us with a series of portraits, as it were. Answering, answering instead a deeper pastoral question. Why, if the lion lamb has conquered, does the world continue as it has, a place of evil, of violence, and of misery? And so, the measured pace by which the Lamb breaks the seals in succession, each accompanied by a new vision, builds suspense in our hearts and minds. It's not until the seventh seal is broken that we can see the events prescribed in the scroll being revealed. But each vision that accompanies the breaking of the seals also prepares the believer to understand what John will see 
when the seventh seal is broken. So on this Lord's Day, we will consider the first four seals because those four make a unit. They share a common structure. You can see it there in your text. First, because we read in verse 1 how the four living creatures in turn shout out, Come! To each in voices like thunder. The second similarity is in the symbolic use of the number four. Now, we noted in our introduction, the first sermon to this series, how, how numbers count. For example, seven is the number of completeness in the Old Testament scriptures. And four in those same scriptures is the number for the world in its totality, in its totality. So there are four horses and four riders because each team rides to one of the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. In other words, there is no area of earth that they do not cover. There is no boundary they cannot cross and no ground that they do not ride over. Now, the third similarity is how John's description is an allusion to the vision in Zechariah that we heard in our first reading. There, we understand how the horses and riders are the forces of the Lord at work in the whole world. And the color of the four horses corresponds to the colors of the four chariot horses. Now, the chariots that appeared to Zechariah symbolized the four spirits of heaven, the text tells us, sent from the Lord's presence to the four points of the compass, bringing judgment on the nations that oppressed Judah. And the emphasis there is on the north, the great northern kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon. Now, John, likewise, sees four horses and riders gallop through the earth, summoned by God's attendants to wreak havoc on his enemies. So the first four seals show the instruments the Lamb uses to judge those who oppose his rule and oppress his church. But notice the horses do not run at random. Each one is directed and controlled. Therefore, however frightening these horses may be, they are saddled and bridled by the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then at the breaking of the fifth seal, there is a glimpse at the reason that lies behind the release of these horses of judgment to cover the earth. You may see it there if you look ahead in your text. It's of those martyred for the sake of God's word, and their testimony cries out for justice. It's the martyrs, you see, who speak our common question, indeed our lament. How long, O Lord, how long must we endure before you return? Although the final vindication must wait to the end of the age, as God's forbearance now reaches its limit, the age in which the number of martyrs is being filled to completion 
according to his gracious election. But notice their lament has not fallen on deaf ears because both through the restrained expression of the Lamb's judgment in the present in seals 1 to 4 and the unlimited display of his wrath in the dissolution of the universe at the climax of history in seal 6 show that the martyr's blood is never forgotten. So let's examine how these four horses and riders work together. Because in each case, the horse and its color is described first, then its rider and their significance. There is a rider on a white horse in verse 2, a rider on a red horse in 4, the rider on a black horse in 5, and finally the rider on the pale horse in 8. So let's go to the white horse first. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So the question we must ask is, what is the character of this first rider? Because, you see, the order sets the theme in most biblical sequences. So understanding what's at the head will give you insight into what follows. So we'll need to pause the film for a moment and look at the still image a little more closely because there's a temptation here in our minds to prematurely leap to the other reference of a white horse and rider in Revelation chapter 19. That is where John will see heaven open to a white horse and rider, the rider being identified as faithful and true, the word of God, with flaming eyes and sharp sword tongue having dominion over the nations. In other words, it is the Lord Jesus himself, the Son of Man, that we met in Revelation 1. Now we could jump to the conclusion and say, ah, this horse, this white horse, is the Son of Man. But we must take care here for a simple reason. We must remember that the first audience who heard John's letter is hearing it being read aloud to them. In other words, they haven't heard chapter 19 yet, and they can't skip ahead like you can with your pew Bible. So going back to our paused film, we should not gloss over the description here. It's different than in 19. Here, the rider is armed with a bow and given a crown. Now, details. The bow is a distance weapon. It's a terrifying weapon in the hands of a skilled mounted rider where death comes unforeseen. But the word wields a sword in Revelation 19. That's a close quarters melee weapon used to dispatch an opponent. The rider wears a crown, but the word wears many diadems. Yes, there is the horse's color. Both are white. We should also consider how white horses were used in the ancient world. They're a rare animal. Why? Because they were a liability on the battlefield. They stand out, in other words. So it makes them and their rider an obvious target. 
So the use of a white horse always underlined invulnerability and conquest. It was the typical horse of the great Roman triumph. So what should we do? Well, I think we should try and keep the simplicity here. That the main thing is the plain thing, as Alistair Begg might say. Without Revelation 19, John's first listeners will connect with Zechariah's vision. They would know their Old Testament, wouldn't they? They've seen Jesus and heard of him in John's first chapter. But the connection of horses and riders brings them back to Zechariah. So I think we could label this first rider conquest, conquest. And how well we understand conquest would lead this horrifying cavalry of violence, famine, pestilence, and death. Because you see, the imperial aspiration of a ruler that precipitates military conflict brings about what? Scarcity of resources, like food and medicine, leading to maltrition, malnutrition and starvation, epidemic and death, as sadly, current events in the Ukraine now bear witness. So this portrait of the sinful grasp for power galloping greedily through the regions, it has yet to conquer is nothing more than God's instrument of judgment. They symbolize the dramatic loss of life in warfare, siege and famine, and finally epidemic, pestilence and the grave, all four ride out to afflict the earth in obedience to the cherubim's command, sent out by the Lord through the breaking of that first seal. So now let's start our film again and trace the first rider's association with those that follow. The red horse in verse 4. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now the second rider, called out by the second cherubim at the breaking of the second seal, rides a horse that is a bloody, fiery red in the original language. His great sword symbolizes his power to remove peace from the earth as people slaughter one another. So we have this double aspect, you see, of slaughter from without in bloodthirsty conquest and slaughter from within in civil violence. Now, sadly, our history is littered with examples of this, where minorities of all kinds are suddenly seen as the enemy and put in prison or indeed executed and slaughtered. The examples say of Rwanda within our own lifetime. Throughout history, the red horse of persecution follows the white horse of conquest as old scores, old jealousies are settled for good as people disappear. The allusion is to an example of the imprisonment of them in a muddy cistern and continual threat of death at the hands of the ruling elite in Jerusalem that hung over the prophet Jeremiah in his old age, even as the Babylonian army 
besiege the city from the outside. Men are dying on the walls every day, and within the city, they're killing each other. Either you're for us, or you're for the Babylonians. So the fiery, blood-red horse and rider are symbols also of persecution of minorities, especially the persecution of the minority in the world of the church. And it shouldn't surprise us. Our Savior spoke of this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. We should expect persecution. It always has been this way. It will continue to be until the census of the martyrs is made complete. The black horse is next. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now, what is all that about? Well, the rider of the black horse holds the scales of measurement, and the measure of the scales is in grain. Notice, it's, it's wheat and barley. Now, why is grain the focus? Because within the agricultural uh, milieu of Asia Minor, we find that they were self-sufficient in olive oil and wine, but not in grain. They were dependent upon imports. And get this, from the region of what we now know as the Ukraine. The price was inflated by about 800% here, which significantly reduced supply, underlying famine and deprivation as it is listed in connection with the fourth horse and rider. Because famine, what, comes about by drought or insect infestation? But here we should understand it, it's being paired with the riders of conquest, the rider of civil war, the scarcity of basic food brought about by warfare, disrupting trade and lines of supply, particularly in a siege. So here, famine affects one food group, but not the other two, because that's local. It puts us on notice that there is a limit to this judgment, as there is to all of God's judgment, as long as God's patience delays its ultimate consummation. He does not desire the death of a sinner, but rather that all might come to repentance, the scripture tells us. So as Christian believers see societies crumble and collapse, we shouldn't be alarmed as if our security were bound up within the frame of a human network, but remain quietly confident and at rest, reminding ourselves the lamb is on the throne and the horse and rider are also under his sovereign control. But now the pale horse of verse 8. And I looked and behold a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. 
Now, the English translation of paleness does not quite convey the horror of this next horse and its rider. Of course, it's Zacharias' horse, dappled gray in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But, but John takes it one step further. He deepens the hue here. In his Greek, the horse is not a pale gray, as in Zechariah, but it is a colorless gray-green. In other words, it's the ashen color of death. It's the greenish, sickly color of a decaying corpse. And verse 8 tells us why. The name of this rider is Death, and Hades, the grave, accompanies him. It reminds us of the first vision of the Son of Man in verse 118, who has the keys to death and Hades, and so has the authority to free its prisoners. It's the last horse and its rider that gathers the grisly consequences of the previous three, do you see? To kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, this doesn't mean that the wild animals of nature will suddenly go mad and attack us. Rather, it's much more grisly than that. What we have here are the carrion animals or the wild animals of the field that descend upon a battlefield where the wounded who cannot move out to safety. And so attracted by the scent, the wounded were literally devoured still living. Now the horrific scenes, one after another, confirm what has been described by the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 21, where he talks of the age that is to come between first and second coming. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. Notice how our Savior reassures believers that the manifestation of the four horsemen's grisly work does not mean that the end is imminent, but rather it is God's warning writ large across history of inescapable judgment. The prophet Ezekiel sums it up this way in chapter 14, verses 12 to 21 of Ezekiel. There we read that not even the presence of righteous Noah or Daniel or Job could protect a treacherous people from God's curse of famine, predatory beasts, sword, and plague. This is how he sums it up. For thus says the Lord God, how much more... When I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Notice here that the righteous ones are present as the horsemen gallop past. So we can understand, can't we, why God's throne and why the Lamb of God is revealed first, before the consequences of God's plan and its execution here, 
before we see the tribulation and persecution that's woven into the life of the church's experience on this world that is falling under the Lamb's restrained wrath against those who oppose his rule. It's good to know that behind this fallen world, filled with the enemies of God, he is the sovereign king of kings. He is the Lord of lords, the one who works according to his plan and his timetable. He does all things according to the counsel of his own will, from rulers to viruses and bacteria. This is the point of view, you see, my dear friends, that God wants you and me as believers to see our entire lives, and indeed, everything that exists. Why he reveals the throne and the scroll before he reveals what is in store for his church, that is, in tribulation. We already have tribulation in the world today, don't we? Indeed, the, to lack tribulation is the exception. It's not the norm. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now notice, there's not one hint of an escape for the church here, is there? The Lord simply says, in the world you will have tribulation. It's not that Jesus promises to snatch away his redeemed brothers and sisters when trouble comes to us. On the contrary, he gives us a deeper assurance. He does promise that he will bring you and me through it because he will neither leave us nor forsake us. Because he tells us, take heart, I have overcome the world. What then is the conclusion? That if you are in Christ, you will overcome the world. You are with Christ. Therefore, you will be made more than conquerors through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message of these early chapters of Revelation. That in Christ, the believer is more than a conqueror. Whatever may come. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.